Alright, welcome back. Uh, this will be the second lecture on the Euthyphro. As promised, I figured I'd go through the rest of the book and we can talk about it. Um, and this will just help you to prepare for your discussions and quizzes and anything else that you run into along the way requested um, and if we find that these are helpful but for the time being I figured at least the Euthyphro and then you'll be a little better prepared for your analysis paper um, and we can go from there. So anyway when last I was lecturing we talked about the first half of the Euthyphro uh, so we talked about the situation we talked about Socrates and his whole uh, indictment by Miletus and all of the crazy historical baggage and other issues that were involved with that, as well as the stuff that Plato wrote about it in the Apology. Um, and we also talked about Euthyphro and his rather um, difficult situation in its own right. <coughs> Specifically, um, he was accusing his father of murder um, and was prosecuting him, even though the situation was considerably more complicated than originally expected. Um, because his father had indeed killed a servant, but only a servant, and that servant had himself killed a slave in a drunken rage, and really the father didn't kill him so much as tie him up, chuck him in a ditch, and leave him there a little bit too long while he went to send for the priest. Um, so all that to emphasize again that both of these uh, men are dealing with crimes of potentially impiety, um, but in Euthyphro's case, it's not entirely clear whether or not he's being impious, and Socrates is just outright being uh, accused of being impious, insofar as he is accused of corrupting the youth by creating new gods and not respecting the old ones. We also covered the first three definitions that Euthyphro presents to us. So the first definition you'll remember, uh, Euthyphro said that... Um, Piety was doing what he was doing, prosecuting the wrongdoer, and he gave us his example of how Zeus would challenge Cronus, and um, and when Cronus was swallowing all of his children, Zeus attacked him and punished him, and Euthyphro then expostulates that he should do the same. Insofar as he is like Zeus, it would make sense that he should also prosecute his father. Zeus is the example that we should follow here. Um, Socrates doesn't really pick up on that so much. Instead, he's much more interested in the fact that this is just one example of piety. Um, that prosecuting wrongdoing may very well be a pious act, but it's surely not the only pious act. There are plenty of examples of piety outside of Euthyphro's own particular situation. So that definition will not work, not because it's not right, but because it's not actually a definition. It's not a formal definition. Um, so Euthyphro's second definition modifies this. He says, and he is correctly using a formal definition in this situation, he says that what is dear to the gods is pious. What they love is pious, and what they hate is impious. But we ran into other difficulties with that one. Um, as Socrates points out, the gods frequently disagree. They are often in discord. Um, and since the gods disagree, they are likely to disagree about issues such as piety. So if they disagree about what is pious, then you can have a situation where theoretically Zeus might think that something is pious, where Athena or Artemis or any of the other gods might disagree and think that it's impious. And if the same action is both pious and impious by this definition, then it can't work as a definition. It contradicts itself. Um, so the definition is not viable. It is inconsistent. 
Um, then we had our brief uh, tangent as Euthyphro was trying to defend his point and say that, well, maybe the gods disagree, but they all agree that I am doing the right thing and prosecuting my father. And Socrates argued that really that was kind of irrelevant, that um, of course the gods agree that you should punish people who kill unjustly. Um, the difference is, did your father actually kill someone unjustly or not? Um, so they go on that for a couple of rounds, and finally we come to the third definition. As Socrates has poked around and he asks Euthyphro, um, is this the change that we want to make? Do we want to change the definition so that instead of talking about what all what what the gods like or dislike, instead we only are interested in what all of the gods like or what all of the gods dislike? So this is our working definition of piety, Euthyphro's third definition. As he says, um, the pious is what all the gods love, and the opposite, what all the gods hate, is the impious. Um, but this leaves some room for ambiguity. If something is both liked and disliked by different gods, then it's not something that we can weigh in on at this point. So if, in fact, um, if all the gods, in fact, agree on that something is good, then it is pious. If they all agree that it's bad, then it's impious. If they don't agree or if they have no opinion, then it is either both or neither and not what we're going to be concerned with. Instead, our focus is what do all the gods love? What do all the gods uh, agree is pious or praiseworthy? Um, which leads us into this section, and I realize this is by far the most difficult and convoluted section in the entire Euthyphro. Um, when I present this in my uh, in-class uh, classes, the third reading is consistently the most confusing and the most difficult. Um, so kudos if you've already read it and tried to struggle through all of this being changed or changing or being loved or love being loved or is it loved or uh, I realize it's super confusing. Um, part of the reason why that's the case is because we're having some major translation issues here. Um, See, most of us sort of envision translation as being a fairly one-to-one -one business, like you just find the word that stands in for whatever the English word is, and now you know the word for that. Um, but ancient Greek does not translate to English very easily. Um, and what, this whole passage, this discussion of being seen or seen, being loved or loved, actually ties directly into one of the ways that ancient Greek is very different from English and one of the ways that English really kind of falls down on itself. Um, see, ancient Greek is an inflected language, uh, like Latin, like the Romance languages. So if you've studied any Spanish or French, you're probably aware of some of this, but not to the degree that Greek uses these same tricks. Um, by an inflected language, I mean that Ancient Greek employs different endings and beginnings of words to get their point across. So, for example, where English uses word order um, to emphasize its meaning, like if I want to say I run, then I have to use two words, I, the subject, and run, the predicate, um, to make a full sentence. In Greek, it would literally be only one word. It would be run. Only the word run would have an ending on it corresponding to who it was who was running. And that ending would vary uh, based on what you're, whether it's supposed to be taking place simply or consistently over time. Um, there would be a lot of different factors that would affect uh, how we were to understand the word run in this scenario. Um, so 
one of the things that Greek can do as a result is Greek doesn't have any regard for word order. So you can put the words in a Greek sentence in any order you want, and it doesn't matter, um, because the grammar, the meaning of the sentence does not rely on the order of the words. You know what the subject is because the verb includes the subject in the verb. You know what role any given noun is because each of the nouns has an ending according to what role it fulfills in the sentence. If it's the subject, then it'll have one ending. If it's the direct object, it'll have a different ending. If it's the indirect object, it'll have a completely different ending. And if it's in some weird case, like a prepositional phrase, then it'll have another ending altogether. Um, so you can say things like, store ran I bought bread. And that would make perfect sense to a Greek person because all of the pieces are there and each of the words would have an appropriate ending according to whether it was the indirect object like store, the subject like I, the verb and who is the subject of the verb like ran. It would be really easy to parse out. But obviously English doesn't do things that way. Um, we rely on word order to understand who is the subject and who in the object, who is the object in any given sentence. Um, saying the store is dark is different from saying um, the darkness of the store. Uh, it's a completely different sentence with a completely different structure. And honestly, the darkness of the store isn't even a sentence all by itself. It's just a subject. Um, so again, that word order is incredibly crucial. But even more than that, th this whole discussion uses a very powerful tool in the Greek arsenal that the English language really can't take advantage of, namely the participle. Um, we have participles in English, although we'll get to that in a moment. But for the Greeks, the participle is an incredibly versatile tool. It is a verb that is also a noun. Um, so for an example, think of the word running in English. Um, now, there are actually a lot of ways that you can use the word running in a sentence. You can say that I am running late. You can say that I really enjoy running. It's my favorite sport. You can say um, while running to, uh, to the store, I suddenly remembered that I forgot my grocery list at the house. All of these are actually different ways of using the word running. Um, so if you were running late, for example, that's using the verb run um, as your primary verb in your sentence. It is the only active verb. But the key is running late uh, is a progressive tense. Um, you're it's something that is happening and that it is ongoing. It's not like I ran late, which is something that happened in the past. Running late is something that's happening now or was happening over a time at a different time. Um, by contrast, when you say that um, while running, I forgot to, or I forgot my grocery list, that puts running in an adverbial sense. Um, it is now a time qualifier. The, the actual finite verb in the sentence is forgot. I forgot my grocery list while I was running late. So running in this case isn't even being used as a verb at all. It's operate, it is a verb, but it's only operating in an adverbial sense. It's only modifying the verb uh, to forget. But the important one for our purposes is that second one that I initially mentioned. Running is my favorite sport. 
Um, see, we say this pretty casually, um, but in this situation, we're using the word running as a noun. We're saying that among all of the sports, like hockey or football or baseball, um, running is actually the one that I like the most. Uh, but what's so annoying about the English language is that all of these three words, running, running, and running, are spelled exactly the same and are indistinguishable to the casual observer. Uh, chances are you didn't even realize that the word running could operate in all three of those tenses, and technically as all three of those types of words, all three of those parts of speech. Um, see, the Greeks are not nearly that ambiguous. If you see a participle, you know it's a participle. It's not an ongoing verb, it's not an accidental adverb, it's not a noun. Like, you know from the beginning that it's a participle. So a lot of the reason why this translation is so confusing, why there's this difference between carried and being carried, loved and being loved, is because the Greeks are employing the participle here, the state of being loved, and it's supposed to be very clearly different from this, the process of actually loving a thing. Um, they're two very clearly delineated different words, but in English they would often show up as the same carrying an object and the act of carrying cannot be distinguished in the normal English sentence. Um, so that's part of why it is so convoluted here. Um, but the other part is a little bit weird to the Greek perspective as it is informed by this linguistic preference of theirs. See, when Plato talks about like is an object carried because it's carried or is it carried because it's being carried what he is suggesting is that there's sort of like a force or a state that that object has at any given moment and what he's asking and what euthyphro is you know also confused about is whether that state comes about because of the object or because of the subject that is acting upon it so take, for example, my textbook. If my textbook is being carried by me, if I am carrying my textbook, then there is a distinction between me carrying the textbook, like I am physically walking around with it, imposing my will on the textbook, as opposed to the textbook being in a state of being carried. I carry, it is carried. Importantly, I am doing it. So when Plato is asking these questions, he's basically saying, you know, is a textbook carried because a person carries it, or is a textbook carried and that's why the person carries it? Does the textbook impose its will upon the carrier, or does the carrier impose their will on the textbook? Now, in the case of the textbook, it's pretty dang obvious. The textbook doesn't have the force of will, at least so far as we know. I mean, I may have the only psychic textbook in existence, but as a rule, we generally consider textbooks to be inanimate objects, and therefore it is the human being that is imposing its will on the textbook. And so it is being carried because I carry it, not because it is itself in the state of being carried. Um, so, but when it comes to the matter of the gods, this distinction becomes a little less clear. So to go back to our third definition, that um, what, is, what is pious is what all the gods love, and what is impious is what all the gods hate. Um, the key that 
distinction that he's drawing here is which one of these comes first. Is an action or a person pious just because the gods love him? Like that is the only condition to being pious, the gods loving that thing. Or are the gods loving a thing because of some intrinsic quality that it already has, because it is already pious? This is the, the distinction that he's setting up. And if you're confused, that's okay. Euthyphro is confused as well. Um, and a lot of these back and forth passages actually indicate that Euthyphro doesn't understand what's going on, and he actually doubles back on his position at least once over the course of this text. So if we look at page 23, I think this is right about 10d. Um, Socrates says, what then do we say about the pious Euthyphro? Surely that it is being loved by all the gods, according to what you say. And Euthyphro says, yes. Is it being loved because it is pious or for some other reason? So what Socrates is saying in this sentence is, do the gods love the thing because it's already pious or do they have some other reason for loving it? Now Euthyphro says, for no other reason. So what he directly posits here is, they love it because it is pious. The gods love a thing because it is already pious. They admire the quality of being pious. Now Socrates immediately backs this up. Is, it, is being loved then because it is pious, but it is not pious because it is being loved. So they love it because it's pious. It's not pious because it is loved. The gods loving the thing isn't the primary reason why it's pious. They love it because it's already pious. And Euthyphro says, apparently. And Socrates turns it around. And yet it is something loved and God-loved because it is being loved by the gods. Which is where things are getting a little bit more confusing. So Euthyphro again says, of course, because he's saying, you know, you don't love it unless it is being loved by the gods. But this is what Socrates is playing with here. If our definition says that it is pious because the gods love it. And we've just pointed out, just made clear that the gods love the thing because it's already pious. Then you end up with a tautology. The gods love the thing because the gods love the thing. And that doesn't make any sense because it doesn't give us anything to work with. What we're saying is a thing is pious. That's why the gods love it but we've defined piety as the gods loving a thing. So we end up with, again, this tautology. The gods love it because the gods love it, and that doesn't help us. So Socrates doubles it down. Then the god loved is not the same as the pious Euthyphro, nor the pious the same as the god loved as you say it is, but one differs from the other. And now Euthyphro is confused. He says, how so? And Socrates says, because we agree that the pious is being loved for this reason, that it is pious, but it is not pious because it is being loved. Is that not so? Meaning, if it's being loved because it is pious, it can't be being loved because it is already loved. Again, it's this tautology. It's redundant. It doesn't actually tell us anything new. So... What we're basically saying here is it's got to be one of the two. Either it's loved because it's pious, or it's pious because it is loved. And either one is a viable solution, but you can't do both. You can't have it be loved because it's loved. You can't have it be pious because it's pious. Um, it has to be loved because it's pious, or be pious because it's being loved.
And again, either of these solutions will work. Socrates presents the question, and ultimately Euthyphro answers, as we saw, it is loved because it is pious and for no other reason. So Euthyphro has agreed. It is loved because it is pious. It has this intrinsic quality of piety, and the gods see it and admire it, and that's what they want, the piety, not this extrinsic quality. They don't love it because they love it. They love it because it is something, it has some quality that is worthy of being loved. But the key here is that if that's the case, if the gods love a thing because it is already, before the gods get to it, pious, then we need to find out what that quality is. And the fact that the gods love it doesn't actually matter. It is what Aristotle would call an accident. So take, for example, a chair. Um, I believe we talked about chairs last week. I almost always end up using this example. Um, we define a chair as something that you sit upon. But there are all these qualities that attach to the chair that aren't actually relevant to the chair's own chairness. Like, I can sit on a whole bunch of different kinds of chairs. Some of them have legs, some of them have wheels, some of them have a tall back, some of them do not, some of them have armrests, some of them do not have armrests. In my class today, we literally talked about beanbag chairs, and that throw a wrench in basically everybody else's understanding of how a chair works. The fact of the matter is, the color of the chair, or whether the chair has legs, or whether the chair has arms, does not matter. It remains a chair regardless. Some chairs have them, some chairs don't. Likewise, all chairs have to be a color. There are black chairs, and there are blue chairs, and there are red chairs, and green chairs, and brown chairs, and white chairs, and any number of other colors of chairs. Every chair has to have a color of some kind, but what color it is does not matter to the chair. It does not affect the chair's chairness. So it's an accident. It is a quality that comes about because of the chair. To take the example of the legs, like every chair has to stand on something. Like part of that definition of chair is that you're elevated off the ground in some way. So something has to support you off the ground. That means that it's gotta be something, either legs or wheels or beans, take your pick. Now it's necessary that it be one of those things, but it is an accident that it is any one of them. It is necessary that there be something holding you up off the ground, but it could just as easily be like a jetpack if we are dealing with some crazy future chair, as it could be legs or wheels or otherwise. The specific thing that holds you up off the ground is not crucial. It is an accident. And as a result, we can't say that a chair must have legs. It is not crucial to the definition, because not all chairs do have legs. Um, it's not relevant to the, our definition of chair. It is incidental. Um, and likewise, as we're talking about piety, as we've realized that um, the fact that the gods love it isn't what makes the thing pious, it's what it is just a reaction to the pre-existing pious quality, that means that the fact that the gods love it is also an accident. Um, it is a sort of secondary quality for piety. It is not crucial to the definition of what piety actually is. So this is the third issue that 
um, Socrates has sort of brought up to make us understand how definitions work. And that for the first definition did not work because it was not formal. It was just an example. The second definition, what all the gods love, didn't work because it wasn't consistent. It contradicted itself. Um, you ended up with a situation where the same act was both pious and impious at the same time. Now we come up with the third component of good definitions. It must be essential. It cannot be just an accident. If you say trees are by definition green, that will in fact apply to a whole bunch of trees, but what makes a tree a tree doesn't have anything to do with the greenness. It has much more to do with the chlorophyll which actually causes the tree to be green. So the green isn't crucial to the definition, but it is a naturally occurring secondary consequence. It doesn't help us understand the thing. We have to look deeper to understand why the thing is what it is. So in order to understand piety, we need to quit looking at the accident of the gods loving it and instead look at whatever it is that makes the gods love it so much. Now, this also brings up a really fascinating dilemma that historically has been sort of hanging around the Euthyphro and has been pestering theists for a long time. Um, see, the argument against uh, the consistency of piety when the gods were like disagreeing, that doesn't apply so much to the contemporary religions because as a rule, most contemporary religions are monotheistic on some level. Um, like even in Hinduism, typically you end up going back through all of the various gods and goddesses to Brahma, the creator of them all. In Christianity and all the Western religions like Judaism and Islam, there is one God and that's crucial. Um, so the, the issue of gods disagreeing doesn't come up in contemporary religion. But this issue here, this issue of whether something is pious because it is loved or loved because it is pious, this has a contemporary counterpart. Uh, many Christians are sort of stymied philosophically by the comparable question of does God say something is good because it's good or is it good because God says so? In point of fact, it's basically asking, does God make all the rules? If God says something is good, does it then become good because God said so? Or is it good and God just acknowledges it and relays that information to us? Um, so the problem here is that neither of these are terribly helpful solutions. Some Christians will fall on one or the other side of this debate. Either they'll believe that something is good because God says so or that God says so because it's good. But both of them are met with really thorny philosophical problems once they accept it. See, if you accept the possibility that it's only good because God says so, that if God says don't kill people, the only reason that it's good not to kill people is because God said so, the issue here is what if God changes his mind? Um, what if God, you know, wakes up one morning and says, okay, so I've changed my mind and murder is no longer bad. Everybody go out and kill as many people as you can before you get killed yourself. Um, according to that logic, a lapse in God's judgment would mean that we still all have to follow the rules. It may not have been good to murder people yesterday, but now that God changes mind, well, it's time to get a murder in. Um, which obviously isn't a really great basis for a, an ethics or an understanding of the goodness of the universe around us. 
That's probably why so many religions rely upon God being unchanging, immutable. He can't change his mind. If he does, then, you know, chaos ensues. Um, but even if this sounds, like, awful, if, you know, you're sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, there's no way that I would follow this potentially despot despotic god i would always want to have some morality to check god's own morality against well that comes with its own set of problems and baggage if you say that god only likes a thing because um it is already good before god says that it is well now you end up with this issue of what makes it good just in the same way that plato is dealing with it um and if it has some quality that makes it good, then why are we paying attention to God anyway? Why don't we just go find the good things ourselves? Why is God even necessary or relevant in this case? Um, and to put it even more as a blasphemy, the idea that God is pre-existed by something good, the idea that God is somehow subordinate to that good, that, that good exists independently of God, that definitely gives God secondary status. And if he's secondary, then he really isn't God by most definitions. So no matter which horn of the dilemma you fall on, it will likely impale you. Um, neither are terribly consistent perspectives. And this bothers tons of theists and is ammunition for many atheists and philosophical skeptics to attack Christianity with. Um, we'll actually be looking at one of the famous solutions a little bit later in the course when we talk about Thomas Aquinas and the simplicity of God, um, because that rather elegantly deals with this problem. But that's anticipating. Um, for our purposes, uh, keep in mind that just this is a huge dilemma and persists to this day. It's even known as the Euthyphro Dilemma. Um, so if you are wandering about on the internet looking for secondary sources or backing up your research, you'll probably stumble across it and see various people's interpretations of how this works. Um, but going forward in the dialogue, you'll find that after Socrates lays this down and explains that uh, this understanding of piety will not work, that it basically is accidental and incidental and not crucial to our understanding and definition of piety, um, Euthyphro gets frustrated, and reasonably so. I mean, again, as I'm sure you were very frustrated reading through this section, it makes sense that Euthyphro is still having his head spinning at this point in time after all this being loved versus loved and loved versus being loved, and whether it's loved because it's being loved or being loved because it's loved, like, it's obviously very confusing. Um, so Euthyphro gets frustrated and he says that he, he sort of expresses his um, restraint, like he does not want to participate in this conversation anymore because it seems like every time that they say something, Socrates ends up twisting his words around and they end up meaning something that he didn't have in mind. So he says, and this is the bottom of page 23 or paragraph 11b-ish, he says, I have no way of telling you what I have in mind for whatever proposition we've put forward goes around and refuses to stay put where we establish it. Now Socrates says that Euthyphro seems to be accusing him of uh, being very similar to uh, Socrates' own ancestor, Daedalus. And this is sort of like an interesting conversation that they have because um, they sort of go back and forth as to whether or not it's Socrates or it's Euthyphro who's putting these arguments into motion. Um, now, Daedalus 
Daedalus was a famous mythic inventor in Greek mythology. Um, he was the one who designed the famous labyrinth in Crete where the Minotaur was held. And the whole purpose of the labyrinth was that you would put these young virgins into the labyrinth and they would wander around possibly for even days while the Minotaur chased them around, finally like tracked them down and gored them and ate them. Um, and this was like the tribute that Crete demanded of all of its neighboring cities until Theseus showed up and killed the Minotaur. Um, but the reason why they got Daedalus to design it was because he was this incredibly clever inventor and architect. Um, this is also the same Daedalus who, after having created the labyrinth, uh, Minos locked him up in a Thai tower. And he and his son, Icarus, um, he Daedalus invented these wax wings for the two of them to wear so they could fly out of the window and escape to safety. Um, and famously, Icarus uh, was warned, do not fly too high because if you get too close to the sun, your wings will melt and you'll plunge into the ocean. But if you get too low, then the, the sort of spray from the ocean waves crashing against one another will mix with the wax and cause it to fail um, and your wings will drop off and you'll fall into the ocean and probably drown. Um, Icarus, of course, being a teenager, pays no attention to what his dad has to say, flies way too high, burns his wings off, plummets into the ocean, and is lost forever, uh, much to Daedalus's chagrin. But this has more to do with Daedalus's status as an inventor. Note, first off, that Socrates claims him as his ancestor. Uh, this was fairly common in ancient Greece. You would usually have various, like, people who existed in historic, historically real people sort of claiming that their lineage from great mythic figures. So Socrates here is comparing himself to Daedalus. He's saying, I too am inventive. I too am a creator. I too am sort of possessed of the same ingenuity that Daedalus had. Um, but at the same time, the reason why they're talking about Daedalus specifically is because Daedalus also apparently invented these little, like, automatic doodads that you would put them down on the ground and they would of their own volition wander around or walk in circles kind of like you know little kids toys where you wind them up and then they like march to the edge of the table or they walk around in a little circle you know cheap stuff that you can get at mcdonald's from happy meals or even more impressive stuff that just walks under its own accord um and euthyphro is accusing socrates of of mode of causing this to happen of making euthyphro's definitions his his statements move around in ways that he did not expect and socrates is suspicious of this um like to continue that metaphor he basically says that in some ways he must be more clever than daedalus because daedalus would just design his own devices and then they would move they would be animated but what euthyphro is saying is that um, Euthyphro is putting down these definitions and then Socrates is motivating them even without having created them himself. So the question that they're sort of facing here is who's causing the arguments to move? Is Socrates pushing them around the table? Is he sort of manipulating this in, for his own inscrutable purposes? Is he sort of deliberately screwing with Euthyphro? Or is Euthyphro creating things that themselves move of their own accord, things that will not stay pinned down? Is this the ingenuity of Socrates moving things around, or is this the incompetence of Euthyphro insofar as the things that he thinks that he knows are not staying still? He, they're not what he thought that they were. Now, it's important to note here that 
um, Socrates does see himself as having a sort of agency in this process. Um, if I can borrow a, another image from the Republic, um, one of the things that Socrates and Plato were very mindful of as they're doing philosophy, be it through philosophical dialogues or through conversations in the Agora or just in interacting with people who are also of a philosophical bent, um, they see this as a sort of mission in their own right. And in the Republic, in the middle of the Republic, right after the image of the divided line, Plato provides us with an even bigger allegory that is both sort of his explanation of the philosophical mission as well as his sort of fullest um, interpretation of the, the theory of forms. So you'll remember from last week the theory of forms was that there are these extant things, these real objects, these forms, things like piety or justice or goodness or beauty. And by that I mean like these what we would call concepts, what he calls ideas, but they also have more reality than we usually think of um, from concepts or ideas. They're not just located in a person's brain, they are out there somewhere, in space, in reality. Maybe they're not physical objects, but they do have their own um, substantiality. They are something, in the same way that I am something. Um, and You'll remember from the divided line that these are also the things with the most reality, that piety and justice and goodness all have more reality than your average day-to-day -day people or than a tree in your yard. Um, all of those supposedly real objects are unreal insofar as they are not universal. They're just one instance of a thing. Um, their treeness or their you-ness or their chairness can be taken away. If you chop down a tree, it ceases to be a tree, but treeness cannot be changed by accident. So um, what Plato says is that it is basically similar to all of human beings, all of humanity being stuck in a cave. Um, and the way that Plato poses this. He says that they're all stuck in this cave. We are all stuck in this cave, but we're also stuck with our backs to a wall. We are forced to face a certain specific direction, and on the wall in front of us, we see shadows. And you'll remember that shadows in the Platonic understanding were at the lowest part of the, of the divided line. They were the least real. Um, so what we are in fact seeing in front of our eyes at all times, what we confuse for reality when we go outside and feel the grass under our toes or like feel the bark of a tree, when we run under the sunlight, that's all unreal for Plato. That is all shadows. That is all experience divorced from reality. We are not interacting with the forms. We are just interacting with these individual instantiations of the forms, not even directly, but through our senses, which further distance us from these things. Um, and he says that that's tantamount to being stuck in a cave, being forced to stare at a wall while these shadows play across the wall. Now, the shadows are actually coming from sort of like puppeteers behind the wall. So if you imagine all of these people chained to this wall, forced to face this one direction. And on the back of the wall, there you see the shadows. Now, above that wall, over their heads, like behind their backs, 
there are these people standing there by a fire and they have these shadow puppets and they wander them around and they have little adventures and they look, you know, somewhat real, but not all that real compared to, you know, actual objects. So, like, they probably have shadow puppets of trees and shadow puppets of dogs and shadow puppets of other people. And, you know, they, they're basically just putting on a puppet show. Um, and all of what we understand as reality is just these shadow puppets moving across the wall. Um, it's so far divorced from what is true, what is actual, what is real. But what Plato says is if someone were to break out of the wall, if they escaped, if they lost their chains and they climbed up out of the cave, um, they would be progressively shocked at each stage of the trip. So when they get past the wall and they see the fire where the people are performing their little shadow puppets, they would probably be blinded by it. It would be shocking. It would be too bright for them to handle. Um, and most, upon seeing the real fire, the brightest thing that they'd ever seen in their lives beforehand, seeing as up until then they'd only seen mere shadows of fire, many would probably turn back. Many would go back to the, to the wall. Many would say, I would rather stare at shadows, even knowing that they're not real, than be faced with the horror that is this incredibly bright fire and these incredibly solid figures. But for those who continue, for those who wander all the way out of the cave, they have an even greater hurdle to overcome because they're going to walk outside and see the actual sun, the actual lights of the world, the actual fires, the actual trees, the actual rocks and dogs and people and horses, bodies of water. All of this will have an alarming reality to them, will be frankly overwhelming. It would be completely reasonable for someone to walk out of the mouth of the cave, be exposed to all this, and basically fall down and weep because it was all so terrifying and so real and so sudden and immediate. But for Plato, that's what philosophy is all about. Um, it is coming out of the cave. It is casting off all of our assumptions about what is real and what is not. It's about overcoming the information of our senses, which is often disagreeable or distorted. It is about recognizing that the trees that we see aren't the trees that are, and that even the trees that are are removed from these high concepts of tree-ness and uh, uh, removed again from even greater concepts like goodness and justice. See, for Plato... What he's positing with his allegory of the cave is that in reality, when we would interact with real dogs as opposed to shadows in a cave, that's what, it, that's what justice or beauty or goodness is actually like. Um, it is far more real. It is as much more real than what we understand by these things as a shadow is from a real tree. Um, justice is to the tree as the law is to the shadow um our understanding of justice the way that we understand justice in day-to-day -day conversation or in speech is so fragmentary and unreal it is unconsidered um, and as a result plato's trying to get us to think about these things for him this business of dialogue that's how you escape from the cave 
all this talk, all this back and forth, all these yes Socrateses from Euthyphro, and all these uh, going around in circles, all these moving arguments, that's how you get from your position on the wall, staring at the shadows in front of you, out into the light. And what, what sort of illuminates all of this, what is the source of the brightest light, is for Plato the sun. And in his allegory, he directly compares that to the form of the good. For him, goodness, capital G, the good, is what illuminates and informs everything. Everything that we understand. Um, and so it's not just like the most important form. It's the form that lights up, that reveals all of the other forms to us. Justice is only known to us because it is good. Beauty is only known to us because it is good. Um, piety is only known to us because it is good. And we can only understand it through its goodness and through our understanding of goodness. So the goal here is to understand these forms, to recognize what is piety across the board. Um, what is it formally? What is goodness formally? What are, what are the things that make things good? What are the qualities that consistently appear in all good things? Um, but the last stage of the allegory of the cave, and Plato stresses this, is that while most who have achieved this level of enlightenment, who have come out of the cave, who have, you know, paled before the fire and again before the sun, and who have come to live and dwell with these beings, these forms, the philosopher has to go back. He has to go back into the cave and get as many people out as possible. So this whole conversation between Socrates and Euthyphro, this sort of staging of Socrates as Euthyphro's pupil, but also kind of his teacher, um, this is all a sort of ploy. Socrates is literally trying to drag Euthyphro out of the cave. And all of this, this resistance, all of Euthyphro's attempts to sort of like backpedal or to reject what he's finding out when he when he says that it's not that all the gods would agree with his own perspective that they would all agree that what he's doing is pious and right um when he's are complaining that socrates is moving his arguments around um that's just him fighting as socrates drags him out of the cave that's euthyphro looking at the fire and saying no i don't want this i thought that i wanted this i thought i wanted to understand more clearly what piety is but really i was comfortable knowing quote knowing what piety was even though it was weak and not sufficient and fell apart at the slightest provocation um so this is in its way a violent process uh it is uncomfortable Socrates needs to make Euthyphro uncomfortable for this to work. Um, so this whole allegory, this could very well describe the process of the Euthyphro as Socrates is leading Euthyphro into this newfound knowledge, this new uncomfortable knowledge, this knowledge that very much overturns everything Euthyphro thought he knew beforehand. And the ugly fact of the matter is that Euthyphro could be wrong. Um, like, that seems to be what Socrates is emphasizing here, and by the end it's even more clear. Um, Euthyphro's protectiveness, the fact that he keeps insisting that he's doing the right thing, what if he isn't? What if his knowledge is incomplete? 
Um, if so, then he is doing, he is potentially causing disaster. He is being impious, but we'll get to that in a moment. At the end of this discussion about Daedalus, Socrates basically manhandles the conversation and swings it over in his own direction. So he says at the very end of his long speech, um, he basically proposes his own fourth definition for us to go forward with in this conversation. Now that we've rejected the first three, now that we are sort of back to square one, now that we don't have this love of the gods as a guide for our understanding and for our definitions, he basically just creates his own. He says, see whether you think all that is pious is of necessity just. And this is him trying to do a more philosophical definition. This is an example of categorical reasoning, uh, defining our terms based on the categories that they belong to. See, when he says, see whether you think all that is pious is of necessity just, he has to clarify. Euthyphro doesn't exactly understand what's going on. But what Socrates is saying is that there is this big category, justice, and piety is a subcategory of justice. It's sort of comparable to the way that a square is a subcategory of rectangle, which is itself a subcategory of quadrilateral. So if we understand that all quadrilaterals have four sides, a rectangle is a four-sided figure, a quadrilateral, but it has its own special rules. It has four sides, but it also has four right angles. Um, a square has all the same rules as a rectangle. It has four sides and four right angles, but it also has the unique property of being uh, equal on all of its sides. So by that scheme of definition, you can get a very precise understanding of what each term in the definition is. A rectangle has a very precise definition. It is this category plus this defining characteristic. A square is very precisely defined. It is this category with this defining characteristic. Um, so this is what Socrates is doing here. He wants to define piety in terms of a bigger category, justice. And the comparison to Euclid is not idle. Um, Plato loved Euclid. He thought math was awesome. There, at the time in Greece, uh, again, I think I mentioned in the last uh, conversation that there was like a geometry cult in its own, own right. Uh, people who thought that triangles were like these divine secretive figures. Um, and Plato sort of models logic on the reasoning that Euclid has already done, the geometry that he has already published. Um, so Socrates is saying that piety should be a subcategory of justice. And then he asks Euthyphro, what is the subcategory? What part of justice is piety? And this is where Euthyphro comes up with our official fourth definition. Um, the piety is the part of justice that deals with the gods. Um, so officially his definition is, I think Socrates, that the godly and pious is the part of the just that is concerned with the care of the gods, while that concerned with the care of men is the remaining part of justice. Now, admittedly, this is not a perfect approach because that just means that we need to define what justice is now. Um, but that's not even the primary issue here because there's, you know, we have a vague understanding of what justice is. And while there will be some major discussion of justice in some of the other platonic dialogues like the Republic, um, for our purposes, Socrates doesn't go that particular direction. Instead, what he's particularly concerned with is what Euthyphro means by care. 
See, he says that piety is the part of justice that cares for the gods. So in this sense, we're saying that justice is about care on some level. And the operative term here is how we care for things. But this is also a bit of a trap. Only it's one that Euthyphro knows to avoid. So when Socrates starts talking about care, he starts making comparisons. And this is another classic feature of Socratic reasoning, this analogical reasoning, comparing one thing to another. So just as he compared the humans to the gods when he was talking about um, the second definition and saying that the gods are like humans, they disagree about the same things. So here he's saying that when we talk about care, what do we mean by it? When we say that a person cares for a dog, for example, we usually mean that that person loves the dog, that they feed the dog, that they keep the dog safe and warm, that they make sure that the dog's needs are met, that if the dog gets sick, that they take them to a doctor, that they get the medicine, that they treat it nicely. All of these things are what is implied by care. And as Socrates reasons out, if you do this for a dog, you're doing it primarily for the dog's benefit. Um, if you care for a dog, you want the dog to be better. Uh, you need to give it these things so it will be healthy and well and will be the best dog it can be. If you care for a horse, the same applies. Um, but making the gods better would be a blasphemy. So you can't care for the gods the same way that you care for a dog or a cat or a horse. So he says, this is not what you meant by care. And Euthyphro says, no, 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 no. Like, none of us can make the gods better. They're already way better than we are. That's part of what makes them gods. It would be blasphemous to think we do improve the gods in some way. So Socrates wants a revised understanding of what care is. If it's not care in the same way that we care for a dog or a cat or a horse, then what kind of care is it? And the definition that Euthyphro comes up with here is that it is care in the same way that a servant cares for their master. Which brings up some other issues. Um, this is a better clarification, and Socrates appreciates it, but he has follow-up questions. See, anytime that you have a servant, anytime that you have someone in the service industry, it's usually to some other purpose. So if we think of our own society, like there are lots of people still working in the service industry, although our economy is not as focused on it as, we, as it once was, it's still a major part of who we are. Now, we don't typically think in terms of servants, like we have long since outmoded servants as a sort of profession in its own right, although there are some in obviously very rich people's houses. Um, but we do understand service on a regular base. Um, so think of a waitress, for example, or a server at a fancy restaurant. Um, the person who does service, they aren't a slave in the sense that the Greeks had slaves. They do not do all the things in a house the way that the Greek servant would have, but they do serve you. Um, so the question that Socrates is interested in is, why? What do they do? What is accomplished by their serving you? Now, in the case of a waitress, that means a whole bunch of things. It means bringing you your food. It means being polite to you. It means getting a tip. Um, but more importantly, the waitress isn't serving the customer so much as they're serving at the restaurant. When we say that there is a service industry, it usually means people serving a greater end. In this particular case, it's food, nutrition. 
um, a waitress is there to serve the customer food so the chef does not have to keep you know interrupting the process of making food to keep delivering this stuff to the customers the, ser the server acts as a go-between so the goal here is to make good food to improve the nutrition and the health of the customer to make everyone better in that way but even more poignant than this are the other examples that Socrates specifically brings up, some of which we do have to this day. So if, for example, you have a nurse, someone who serves a doctor, um, that nurse is also engaged in whatever goal the doctor is engaged in doing. Um, the nurse is there to make life easier for the doctor, to do all the menial tasks that the doctor can't be bothered with. If the doctor's time is more importantly spent on diagnosis or on um, meeting with other patients or on conducting surgery in some cases, the nurse is the one who's going to take care of the day-to-day -day physical checkups, do all the paperwork, do basic injections and other, you know, medical-related activities. Um, but the important thing is both the nurse and the doctor have the same goal, the health of the patient. So the nurse serves, but the nurse serves to a particular end, in the same way that the waitress serves to a particular end. Likewise, if you have a contractor, their goal is to help build a house under the, uh, under the direction of the foreman and the architect. A shipbuilder and his apprentice will both be uh, building a ship. That is the goal of their work. That is the goal of their service. So having plotted all this out, having emphasized that every single servant, everyone who serves, everyone who cares as a servant cares for their master, is engaged in helping the master with their work, the logical question here is, okay, what job do the gods have us doing? What goal do the gods have in mind? And Euthyphro, his initial answer is that the gods have tons of plans. There's lots of stuff that they're trying to do. And Socrates won't have this. He says, well, yeah, but there's lots of different sub-plans for all of these other professions as well. Like if you have a general and he has like a lieutenant who serves him, it's all for the goal of victory, that for success in battle, to win the war. Um, so there's still a goal. Like, the doctor may tell the nurse to, you know, take his blood pressure or to, you know, do an injection or to take some of their blood, but it's all for the purposes of diagnosis, to make the person healthy. So it doesn't change the fact all of these different professions have one singular goal. What, then, is the goal of the gods? What do they want us to do? What are they trying to accomplish that our service will help them do? And now, at this point in the conversation, Euthyphro gives us very much a non-answer. So if we look at page 25 in the book, or paragraph uh, 14b, um, if you're looking at the Gutenberg, you'll see Socrates asks this question straight out. How would you sum up the many fine things that the gods achieve? This is him asking as straight as possible, what is the goal of the gods? And Euthyphro responds, I told you a short while ago, Socrates, that it is a considerable task to acquire any precise knowledge of these things, but to put it simply, I say that if a man knows how to say and do what is pleasing to the gods at prayer and sacrifice, those are pious actions such as preserve both private houses and public affairs of state. The opposite of these pleasing actions are impious and overturn and destroy everything. 
But notice Socrates is immediately frustrated with this answer. You could tell me in far fewer words if you were willing the sum of what I asked, Euthyphro, but you were not keen to teach me. That is clear. You were on the point of doing so, but you turned away. If you had given that answer, I should now have acquired from you sufficient knowledge of the nature of piety. As it is, the lover of inquiry must follow his beloved wherever it may lead him. Once more, then, what do you say that piety and the pious are? Are they a knowledge of how to sacrifice and pray? And the dialogue continues. But lest we not notice this, this is a question that Euthyphro leaves on the table. It's not one he can answer. When Socrates asks, what is the goal that the gods have for us? The best answer Euthyphro can come up with is, let's change the subject and talk about prayer and sacrifice. That's what piety is all about. This is kind of the fifth definition, but it's a bullshit definition. And Socrates doesn't like it, and Socrates will spend the rest of this dialogue being pretty frustrated about it. Because the fact of the matter is, Socrates asked the key question. What is the goal the gods have in store for us? What is the purpose that they have in mind? To put it more bluntly, Socrates is asking, what is the meaning of life? What is the point of all this? Why did the gods make us? Why are we supposed to serve them? What are the gods trying to accomplish? What is the meaning of reality, of existence, of being? And of course Euthyphro doesn't know the answer to that question. That's way above Euthyphro's pay grade. Like, even most of the Christian mystics, people who supposedly did have like a one or a sort of insight into the nature of God, they very rarely are able to answer this question. Prophets and priests, people of all religions across the board, across history, have struggled with this question. Why are we here? So of course Euthyphro doesn't know the answer to it. But the thing is... Socrates shows us how this is the most crucial question to this entire conversation that they've had. Um, all of it comes down to this. Our discussion earlier about whether or not the gods love a thing because it's pious really boils down to what is the quality that the gods admire? What do the gods want? Why do they want these things? What are they trying to accomplish? What is advancing the goals of the gods? What is the purpose of human life? So for Socrates to say, why you could tell me in far fewer words you were on the point of doing so but turned away, this is the point that Euthyphro absolutely unquestionably reveals his ignorance. For Euthyphro to say, I know what the gods want, I understand piety. For Euthyphro to say, as his second definition, it's what the gods want, implies that Euthyphro knows what the gods want, and the fact of the matter is, he doesn't. We've gone for all eight of these pages, we've read all of this back and forth, there have been all of these arguments, and basically they're all trying to track down this one question, Euthyphro, what do the gods want from us? And Euthyphro doesn't know. So at the end of the day, without that information, Euthyphro doesn't know anything about piety. He has been blowing smoke this entire time, which, admittedly, we suspected. But now it is painfully obvious. Um, so as we go forward, there is a little bit more discussion. They back and forth about whether or not, or how prayer and sacrifice equates to piety. But the conclusion that Socrates comes to is we're right back where we started. Like, we've gone in a full circle. Um, prayer and sacrifice is basically just asking stuff from the gods and giving stuff to the gods. 
which just brings us back to what do the gods want? Why do they like it? Why, why is sacrifice pleasing to the gods? Why is prayer pleasing to the gods? So once again, we're back at, do is it pious because the gods like it? Or do the gods like it because it's pious? We're back to that question. And again, if the gods like it because it's already pious, that means we have to ask why? What is the accomplishment? What are they trying to do? What is the meaning of life? Um, and if it's not, if it's the gods just like it and therefore it is pious, then we have to ask again, why do the gods like it? What makes it important? What makes it valuable to them? Again, we come back to this question, what is the meaning of life? What are the gods trying to accomplish? And at this point, Euthyphro bails. Um, Euthyphro is like, well, would you look at the time? And he takes off. Um, but notice, he does take off. He leaves. Euthyphro came to the court of the King Archon in order to have his suit heard so he could prosecute his father. If he leaves, he's not going to have his suit heard. He no longer believes that he's doing the right thing, certainly not with the confidence that he did at the very beginning of this dialogue. So while it's subtle and certainly not like definitive, it seems that Socrates has successfully changed Euthyphro's mind as although Euthyphro doesn't bother to admit it. But the key here is we haven't defined what piety is. Like, if you were looking for an answer, if you were looking for the definition that, like, wins, I am sorry to disappoint. But what we have learned is what is necessary for us to understand piety. What is the prerequisite to defining piety? That's clear. It's understanding what the meaning of life is we can't understand piety until we understand what the gods want why the gods want us to do certain actions so the emphasis here is not on you know whether euthyphro is being pious by prosecuting his father or not the emphasis is on euthyphro is being impious because he's acting without proper knowledge he is acting irresponsibly and remember, this is a time where being pious or impious could bring down destruction on your head. Like Zeus will strike you with lightning if you are impious to him, if you disrespect his law. So for Euthyphro to just dash forward, regardless of what piety actually might be, for Euthyphro to say that he understands piety and to take this incredibly drastic action of prosecuting his own father without actually knowing at the bottom what piety is, that, that's impiety. That's gotta be impiety. At the very least, it is reckless piety. It is a piety that does not recognize itself. A piety that doesn't stop and think, that doesn't even try to figure out what the gods want in this particular situation. Maybe he's doing the right thing, maybe he's not doing the right thing. It doesn't matter because he didn't care to check. He didn't try and figure it out. And really, that ties back to the whole message of this dialogue start to finish. So is Miletus. For Socrates to be accused of being impious, when Miletus himself is apparently so wise as to know who corrupts the youth, implies that Miletus probably doesn't know either. Miletus 
Euthyphro, all of these people say they know what piety is, are acting supposedly to defend piety. But at the end of the day, if they don't know what piety really looks like, then how can they go around making these accusations? How can they ruin these people's lives, bring Socrates to death, bring Euthyphro's father to court, when really there's no justification for these actions? Plato is pointing the finger at Socrates' accusers and saying, you, you were being impious. You who held up the gods and said, Socrates is spitting in their faces. Did you even know what gods you were talking about? Did you know what they want? Did you know what their goals were? How do you know that Socrates wasn't actually doing exactly what the gods want? That Socrates wasn't being pious in this high up way? So this text very much is about this sort of responsibility. How do we use what we know and how do we recognize what we don't? Euthyphro isn't dangerous because his definition of piety is wrong. He's dangerous because he doesn't care to find out what the right definition is. He acts recklessly. Uh, and that's the theme of this course. Like at the, I know that when we talked about, you know, in, in the syllabus discussion, when I said that this is about epistemological responsibility, it's a bunch of big words and it doesn't mean much, but this is really the brass tacks. If somebody doesn't know what they're doing and they proceed to act as though they did, they can cause incredible harm. Euthyphro brought the ire of his entire family down on his own head, potentially offended and upset the gods and therefore could be in physical danger socrates dies because of this socrates dies because people like Miletus said that they know what they knew, what they didn't in fact know so it is incredibly important from plato's perspective to know what you're talking about to not claim some kind of knowledge that doesn't belong to you for you to critically evaluate your own thinking and be aware of what exactly it is that you are responsible for. This is what I mean by epistemological responsibility, taking responsibility for your knowledge and for your ignorance when it is appropriate. Um, like that's not to say that you can't act, but it is to say that actions should be careful and measured. And we're going to see this repeated in a lot of these philosophical philosophers works um, we will see Descartes say basically the same thing in the meditations we will see the writer of Ecclesiastes talk about the difference between wisdom and foolishness we will see Nietzsche condemning people for buying into false moralities and for like jumping to accept popular perspectives all of these philosophers are incredibly concerned with this they want to be responsible in their behavior based on what knowledge they do or do not have. So that's very much the upshot of this text. Um, start to finish, this is as much about knowledge and about, as much about recognizing the limits of our knowledge as it is about piety itself. And in fact, I suspect that Plato is saying that they're one and the same. To be pious is to know what you don't know. And no thinking you know what you don't is impiety um at the very least so before we wrap it up for today i do want to talk about the analysis paper um 
I realize that like the description of the analysis paper on the syllabus and in the assignment description on Canvas are both a little bit insufficient, so I do want to clarify that here. Um, I've spent, this is already coming close to two and a half hours, and honestly, again, that's kind of slight, seeing as it's four classes worth uh, in an actual classroom, and thus like five hours. Um, but we've spent a lot of time talking about the dialogue, about how it works, about all five of these definitions and how Socrates breaks each one of them down, how he ultimately rejects each of them in turn, with the possible exception of the fourth, which has its own problems because Euthyphro can't answer one of the crucial questions. Um, that's what I'm looking for in the analysis paper. It is the one time that I will ask you to do summary, uh, but summarize the way this argument works. Show me the moving parts. Show me how each argument proceeds to the next one. How you have a definition by Euthyphro and a de deconstruction of that definition by Socrates and then another subsequent definition by Euthyphro. How that proceeds. Where do the turns in the argument occur? Where do we go from our first to our second definition to our fourth definition and so on? How do we get there piece by piece? If you can do that, if you can summarize everything that went down, all of these turns in the argument, if you can talk about categorical reasoning and analogical reasoning and how they're employed in this text, if you can talk about the law of non-contradiction, if you can talk about the difference between the essential and the accidental components of the definition, that's what I'm looking for. Um, I'm looking for you to understand how the logic works here and how it gets us from start to finish, how it gets us from us not knowing anything to us still not knowing the answer, but having a much better understanding of how we get to it. So anyway, uh, that is due in what I believe will be about two or three weeks from when you're probably listening to this. I'm recording it early, obviously. Um, so do keep aware of that and feel free to email me if you have any questions. You are welcome to submit drafts to me via email if you want my feedback. Um, just keep me posted. I would, I will happily help you any way that I can, uh, but I obviously can't if you haven't talked to me about it. Um, so anyway, I hope to see you in the discussion boards. I will still, as I did this past week, um, flip around and occasionally drop my two cents in where I think it's appropriate, uh, hopefully with a sparing hand. Uh, as for lectures going forward, I'm really not sure if I'm going to do any more. Uh, so if you have actually found these valuable and helpful, uh, feel free to either email me or mention it in one of the general discussion board posts. Um, like, they're, they're not a ton of work to do, but they do take time out of my day, obviously, and, you know, I'd rather be sleeping right now. So um, I won't do it unless it really is helping a bunch of you out and really making this easier. Um, but I'd just assume see you guys discuss through the texts and come to your own conclusions. Um, either way, for next week, we'll be reading the Tao Te Ching. Um, and that one I'm definitely not doing a lecture on because I never lecture on that one. I always just end up sort of opening up the class to discussion and just talking about it. Because it's just too ambiguous. There's so many different interpretations. Um, so if you are getting frustrated by the Tao Te Ching, if it is a little confusing for you, don't panic. That's deliberate. It is intentionally obscure and cryptic and almost mystical in some ways. 
Um, so I hope you enjoy it at any rate, but um, let me know how you do with that, and I, again, hope to see you in the discussion boards. So I'll talk to you there.